my name is Clydette Powell, and I serve as a medical officer for the U.S. Agency for International Development in, based in Washington, D.C. I work in the Bureau for Global Health, um, but I interface with our Bureau of Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance, in which our trafficking in persons activities are largely located, mostly in the democracy and governance. So I have an opportunity officially in my official capacity to provide the voice of the healthcare professional regarding matters of trafficking in persons. I've worked at the U.S. Agency for International Development for the last almost 14 years. Um, I am here in a personal capacity. I'm not officially representing the U.S. Agency for International Development, but I don't think that anything that's presented here would be... Um, contrary to their approach to trafficking in persons. I am trained as a clinician, and I practice as one. I'm a child neurologist, so I see patients once a week at Children's National Medical Center. And then I also have volunteered uh, for Restoration Ministries in Washington, D.C., which is a, a faith-based outreach to teens at risk or teens who have actually been trafficked for um, mostly sex purposes, not, not so much labor purposes. And um, it's the, the activities are largely held at the Juvenile Detention Center in Washington, D.C., but there are group homes and other activities that Restoration Ministries support. I mention that particular organization because I think it's helpful for people to think about to think globally but to act locally. Oftentimes people think that trafficking is something that happens somewhere else, but it really happens in your own city. It's hidden in plain sight. It's something that we aren't aware of until we have been educated and sensitized. And I hope that at some point each one of you in this room will be able to identify your first trafficking victim if you haven't already. It's an honor to be a part of this conference. We have each year found that there's a growing interest in trafficking in persons, and I suppose I should congratulate people who understood that TIP, TIP, stood for trafficking in persons. I realized that the title for this, con this particular lecture didn't convey that as clearly in the, in the book. So thank you for coming. And also, as I mentioned to some other people at a previous lecture, I feel like someone on those airplanes that says, thank you so much for flying our company. I want to thank you so much for coming to this session because I know that you have other choices. You could fly with other sessions this morning. And you've chosen to come here. The other thing that I want to mention is that we are all on a learning curve. Um, there are people here at this conference and even not who have far more experience than I. So I consider it an honor and privilege to be able to come here and speak with you. I am glad to entertain focus questions throughout the session. Um, it would be lovely to have time for Q&A at the end. We'll see how that goes. We'll just see you know, what happens. I have a lot of material that I would love to share with you. I tried to keep it focused for this particular session that I understand goes for about um, 40 minutes. All right, well, let's get started here. I have four learning objectives for this session. One is for you to be able to identify the key personnel with whom healthcare professionals will interface in the process of care for a tip victim, including law enforcement. You know, sometimes as healthcare professionals, physicians, or nurses, we think we're kind of it. 
in terms of what happens within a healthcare setting. But in fact, we've got to be a team, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. I also want you to be able to start thinking, if you haven't already, about approach, your approach to referral services and short and long-term needs. Let me also just step aside here and say that my understanding is that these slides will be posted up on the website at some point um, by the conference organizers, but you're welcome to take notes. Thirdly, I want you to be able to have some uh, ability to list the key forms of immigration relief available to victims, including T and U visas. Again, this is getting back to the message. Trafficking isn't just happening in Cambodia and Thailand or wherever. It's happening really in the U.S. because the U.S. is a destination country and there is trafficking of foreigners, both legal and illegal within the United States, as well as trafficking of U.S. citizens, uh, largely adolescents. And then apply key lessons as an expert witness, as a healthcare professional. I hope that we'll have time to get into this. You know, if you get that far along in the path where you have an opportunity to be an expert witness in a court setting, what, can you, what should you do or not do, or what should you have done during your clinic consultation in order to prepare for that particular setting? Anyway, so let's get started on this. On your team, you'll have many healthcare professionals or many professionals to work with, some of whom understand health sector, some of whom have a totally different optic. And you're not expected to perform their functions, but it's very useful for you to know how your role works with them, how you um, interdigitate, integrate your work, and how your role can complement theirs so that you're not taking over their role, you're not being the law enforcement officer, and they're not being the healthcare professional. So let me ask you, who is on your team? Who do you think is on your team? This is audience participation. <laughs> the room is not too big to have audience participation. Social workers. Absolutely, social workers. Attorneys. Attorneys. <laughs> Pardon? Nurses. Nurses. Police. Police. Prosecutors. Immigration. Immigration officers. Psychologists. Yes, mental health psychologists, counselors. Chaplains. Chaplains, thank you. Yes, clergy, a very important point because there are real spiritual issues in these um, trafficked victims. So those are a number. And then, of course, Forensic specialists, people who are familiar with lab crime procedures, uh, crime lab procedures, etc. <clears throat> and the issue is, as healthcare professionals, you're not expected, or, or social workers, you're not expected to know all the laws and um, and services, etc. But it's helpful if you are somewhat familiarized about them, because you will be able to serve your. Uh, Trafficked victims or people who may have been at tra may have been trafficked uh, much more be much better. So preparedness. This is just kind of a reminder. I think you know for those of us who grew up as you know Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, a sense of always being prepared is a message that cannot be said too often. So you need to be prepared before you have the need for this. You need to know who to trust, who are your support persons, who are the agencies, etc that you can reach out to, um, and what is the, the range of that assistance. 
And I would say that mapping out your potential partners, knowing your community, is, is the way to get started. I mean, you wouldn't start on a journey to help traffic persons. You wouldn't start out on a journey without at least pulling out a map or getting a GPS or having someone who's also been to that destination or been along that journey to tell you, uh, you, know, to tell you where are the ways to go and where, what are the pitfalls as well. So the first thing in being prepared is knowing your local resources. So making a list of names and phone numbers to call, knowing where your shelters and safe houses are, what the hotlines are, knowing your local clergy and other organizations. So even before you ever open your doors to the possibility of um, helping traffic victims, you need to consider those. This happens to be a sample sheet. You need to make your own, but it helps you think, who are my 24-hour emergency response people? Who are the people who have case management experience in trafficked persons? Who can help with basic needs, with shelter or food or clothing, et cetera? Um, you know, where might they get residential treatment? Is there somebody who is fully healed let's say if they were a traffic victim who might in some way be able to help uh, with peer support. Where can you get short-term housing or permanent housing? If there's an issue of another language, another culture, who can you count on to be an authentic uh, and skillful translator for you? Um, you know, where are the emergency rooms or urgent care centers that you might need to reach out to for um, urgent or emergent care? And who are the people within your community who, are count, who have counseling skills specifically in, in uh, trauma? And then your legal advocates and, of course, um, your clergy and churches who can also come alongside. So knowing their names, their phone numbers, their emails, where they're located. And any com I think a comment column is helpful. This sheet you prepare as a team. And uh, I would say get it reproduced, maybe laminated. Uh, tack up in the consultation rooms, et cetera, or you know, put it in an appropriate place so that it can be readily used. The other thing, if you can't do all of that, is just simply to know the hotline number. This hotline number is established through the Health and Human Resources, uh, the Department of Health and Human Resources here in the United States, and it supports a hotline that is run through Polaris which is based in Washington, D.C., that runs the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. And this hotline is, if you could go away from this talk knowing nothing else but this hotline, I feel, hotline number, I feel like I would have achieved a key point. So that number is 1-888-3737-888. And now for some audience participation, I want you to repeat that number in unison. So let me hear it from you. 1-888-3737-888. I've called that number, and I found that the person, they immediately answered. The person stayed with me. They got a lot of pertinent information on the person I thought might have been trafficked. And to my surprise, they called me early the next morning and said, any updates? Were you able to reach the people that I had suggested you reach, et cetera, you know, in terms of support services? So very good. They also keep track of the numbers of calls, the uh, uh, 
trafficked victims or suspects who have been referred to another level. And they also are just a good resource information. So as I mentioned, they are run out of Polaris in Washington, D.C. And I'm going to ask you about this number later on, so keep it in mind. All right, let's just talk a little bit about referral scenarios. I, this session is meant to be very practical, sort of hands-on virtually. So I, I want to give you a sense of, you know, you've probably, a number of you have already had your awareness raised about trafficking. You know what TIP, TIP is, trafficking in persons. Um, but you're saying, okay, now I have this information. What do I do with it? How do I go? What do I do if, you know, a trafficked victim comes into my clinic or maybe I'm in my neighborhood and I think I'm seeing some suspicious activity and, you know, in a house, lots of cars pulling up and people coming in and out. Or I'm on my way to, you know, I'm driving and I stop at a truck stop and I think there's some interesting activity going on, people getting in and out of trucks, et cetera. You know, what, what do I do? How do I refer? You know, what's my next step? That's where I want to be able to take you. So let's just look at some referral scenarios. There are four categories. One is the urgent or imminent danger issue. Another is a setting in which a referral may be possible. A third is that there is not a referral at that particular time for a variety of reasons, but the patient might come back. Or, in the last category, that person refuses or the setting is so unsafe, maybe there's someone who has accompanied the traffic person and it's too unsafe to make a referral at that time. So we're going to go through these and um, just look at some of the particulars. I think for the healthcare professionals in our group, it's pretty clear about, you know, when to do the emergency referral. If that trafficked victim has come in with altered consciousness, um, they've been hit in the head or battered so many times, they are lethargic, they're, or maybe in a coma, or they're bleeding out of the ear, or they look clearly battered, then, you know, obviously that's an emergency referral. They may be very dehydrated. Perhaps they've been labor trafficked, they've somehow you know, gotten out, but they've been, you know, on the run at night, not been able to eat or drink. Given that trauma is a common issue both in labor and sex trafficking, whether there have been any recent fractures or lacerations or in sex trafficking, any vaginal or rectal bleeding or abdominal pain for a variety of reasons, trauma, pelvic inflammatory disease, other things going on, or even just fever. Now, in terms of imminent danger, the most important thing is to ensure your own safety first. You want to focus on the health of the patient. You might need to, you may need to convince him or her and the person with them that emergency care is essential. And they may or not, may or may not be willing to do that. And um, I think you just have to be able to live with that kind of reality as to whether a, a referral may be possible, even when it's medically indicated. And again, like the airlines, you need to take responsibility for your own safety. Before you're giving that oxygen mask to your trafficked victim, you need to, in a sense, put on your own oxygen mask. And and what does that mean? Um, It means taking responsibility for your safety in that you don't give out personal contact information, you don't take the tip victim to your home, you don't reveal information about your own family or loved ones or, you know, what neighborhood you work in. You don't give out information to third parties, to the media. You don't, you don't share this information with your family and friends or anywhere in public because you not only endanger yourself but possibly that person that you saw. 
Also, you don't work alone. This is not work for lone rangers. Um, you shouldn't be the only professional there, you know, at midnight at the urgent care center or the free clinic, etc. In your own uh, clinical setting, you should have check-in and check-out procedures so your staff know when you're on the shift and when you're home. And also, you, should sh- you yourself should show caution in isolated areas, just the same sorts of things that we're always told, you know, not going into dark places or down dark alleys. You never know when somehow you've been identified as the person to help a traffic victim, identified by that person's pimp or whoever is um, controlling them. So be vigilant and um, encourage your staff to do the same. You should also have in advance some kind of alert system in your clinical setting, you know, a button to to press underneath the counter or something to, you know, step on um, as you're sitting in a certain place, making sure that you have some way that that alerts someone outside and within. It may be, you know, the hotline button to the local law enforcement, somebody who can come over and make sure that there isn't a fight, an altercation, a problem, et cetera, that could put you, um, yourself, and the victim at danger. Now, when referral is possible, as a healthcare professional, you should determine the priority needs of your patient. For example, you know, what does he or she need first um, beyond the medical care? Do they need safety? Do they need shelter? Um, do they need clothing? Um, do they need some kind of psychological care? Do they need legal or immigration assistance or even just translation services? And it's important to explain to that person what that, re- you know, the effects of that referral. Um, give them options. They've had all that control taken away from them. Give, you know, put the control, in a sense, back in their court by letting them know what their options are, explaining how they may benefit from this particular referral, um, and just how that system works. In addition, as any good healthcare professional, in informing the patient and getting consent, giving them a voice in the decision, um, helping them to act uh, judiciously helping them to make the best decision for themselves. Just good medical practice, good standards of care. But what happens if there's no referral possible, and, but you think maybe the patient would come back? Again, maintaining your professional role. Try to provide, provide as much comprehensive care at that visit as you can. Um, arrange for follow-up visits, explain that lab tests, you know, a lab may, lab test may be done, the results will be available, you know, please come back and, you know, we'll decide whether you need um, X, Y, or Z treatment. The other thing is that because in these settings traffic victims have learned not to trust anybody. I mean, sometimes they can't trust, of course they can't trust their pimp, but they may not be able to trust even the relative or family that, you know, sold them or, you know, is perhaps their pimp themselves, that relative or family member, or the police. Sometimes the police or, you know, local authorities are in on that <coughs> on that victim situation. So, you know, here you are, a stranger. This is the first visit that's maybe a one-off visit. Um, you may not be able to have trust established on such an early visit. But if there's some way to, to establish a setting for that, recognizing that there's confidentiality, that you care, that they are going to be making the decisions, you may be able to get them back and then therefore refer them to a safer environment. 
So what if referral is just simply not possible at all? It may be because the situation is unsafe or the patient refuses or the patient is worried about they're going to be deported. You know, they're afraid you're actually going to refer them to immigration and then they're going to, you know, just going to be back in their own situation again. So you want to maximize that encounter and try to have as positive an, uh, an effect on that uh, patient as you can. <coughs> Now, just a real practical point. When communicating information, sometimes we put things in writing. Um, just remember that the, that document may be traced back to your health center. So it's almost better to put it on something that doesn't have letterhead information or an address. This person, if they're going to come back, they'll, they'll find a way to come back to you. So just be careful about about what you, um, what you provide. Sometimes it's even best to put it on a small piece of paper that assuming it's a woman, you know, that she could tuck inside her bra or a guy could tuck inside her, his, his pants um, and hide that information. There are some places that they actually make up ahead of time a little what they call a bra card, which has information on the clinic, the number, the 24-hour contact person, et cetera, um, that that person can put in there. Or they give them little, they've made like matchbox uh, little, you know, set of matches, and inside it has something or a little wristband or just something that is small and helpful and can be hidden. Some words of wisdom about all this. Um, you know, you may not be able to rescue your patient in this particular setting uh, due to security risks to you or your patient, um, but the responsibility is not yours alone. That's why I started off talking about your team. Don't try to rescue the, the person, but be linked to a protection service. So, you know, if you've got, if you think you have traffic persons in your area, you should also know who are the law enforcement people who are going to work to help protect that victim, not just simply try, you know, who think, oh, you know, this is a criminal, this person should be, you know, put in jail or in a detention center, et cetera. And um, it's also important uh, before you contact authorities, let the patient know that. Say, you know, I think that you could benefit from some help by X, Y, and Z. With your permission, I'd like to contact them and, you know, see what their response is. They may have had such bad experience with law enforcement that they don't want to do that. There may be an alternative. You can say, in this case, let me connect you with someone, you know, who works with people in your, in your circumstances who can help you get your basic needs. Now, I've mentioned some of the short and long-term needs here, but I wonder if there are some that I haven't mentioned that some of you who have experience in this area might, might suggest. What about people who are experienced in substance abuse? Because the reality is that sometimes these traffic victims have been pummeled with alcohol and drugs, either to numb the pain of what's going on with their bodies or because their pimp has been trying to season them and soften them to, to do his, his work. Another one would be uh, transportation. Um, oftentimes people just getting from one place to another. So you say, okay, you know, here's a shelter you can go to, but you know, they don't have transportation services. So that would be another short and sometimes long long-term care need that you would need um, to help them out with. The other thing to do is just perhaps having in your facility just extra clothing, personal hygiene, maybe little packets, something that would have, you know, a toothbrush, some soap, shampoo, tampons, um, something like that. 
maybe some underwear, you know, just clothing that that could be worn by that person as they leave. And that almost could guarantee that somebody would return because you've shown in a very simple and concrete way that you care, that you recognize their immediate needs. Long-term care needs are another story, but recognizing that they may need uh, sort of bigger picture things. They may need help with life skills training. They may, if they're an immigrant, they may need help legal assistance, assistance accessing documents. Um, They may just need to know how to navigate a system within the United States. They may have children of their own, so they're dealing with child care issues, or maybe nobody has ever taught them about budgeting. Um, And then, in some instances, reunification with their families or repatriation. So it's important to consider short- and long-term needs in that setting. Other services are juvenile justice and detention centers, getting child protection services involved. Again, maybe the, the, the kids have not been trafficked, but they've been traumatized. They've been, you know, they've lost sleep because their mom has been, you know, doing her forced work in their room, and so they're hiding under the bed, they're not going to school, they're not getting their immunizations, um, and so they also need some help in that instance. And, of course, mental health and substance abuse programs are an essential part of their care. The other part of the care, and I, I bring this up because, as I said at the beginning, it's not all about medical and healthcare professionals. Having people who uh, can provide some healing through the arts, expression through painting, through music, through um, movement or dance, or perhaps sports or creative writing, oftentimes people will want to kind of express themselves in some way. And you may get insights in terms of seeing what they're writing, what they're painting, especially if there's a language issue that someone is able to um, to express themselves in a, um, a nonverbal way. So keep in mind that maybe having music or art therapists as part of your expanded program would be useful. Now, again, just keeping in mind, you know, the team of people we work with. So what does law enforcement want you to know? And I've just put three bullet points here. There's a host more of information that you should know, but at least to get us started. So if you suspect a felony, you must report it to your local law enforcement agency. If it happens to be dealing with an international trafficked victim, you need to report that to the Department of Homeland Security. If this is a domestic person, then they should be reported either to the local police or the FBI. Hence the reason for that Matrix, that sort of laminated card that you've got in your, your clinic. You need to know, you know, to whom you need to report this, to whom you need to get engaged. You're not there to be the rescue person or the prosecutor or even the investigator. Keep that in mind. Investigating and building a case is a challenge. Often there are issues of victims not wanting to be re-traumatized by having to retell their story in court. They just sort of want to get this over with. But if we really want justice to be done, and there's so much that the Bible says about justice and injustice, as Christians, we need to be able to fight for justice. And your engagement in some way within these courses, within these cases, building a case is essential. Victims mistrust, they may not be willing to cooperate, but ultimately their testimony is crucial in prosecution as a criminal case because this is clearly a crime. 
I would encourage you to know both the national and the state protocols for sexual assault medical forensic examination, sometimes called SAFE, sexual assault forensic exam. And also within your own setting, coordinate with your professionals to minimize repetitive questions. It's hard, I think, for anybody to have been traumatized and to keep telling the story over and over again. You should know who your SART team is, your sexual assault response team. Who is the law enforcement officer, the prosecutor, the advocate, the crime lab, and uh, children's services or children's protection? That's, um, that's, those are your go-to people as part of SART. And as I mentioned before, a, a person can decline any part of this. It's difficult. When we want to do something, we know that the person needs help, but they're not ready to receive help for whatever it is. So we have to support their decisions. We have to let them know that what's happening to them is not right. Sometimes people think they deserve it. They did something where, hey, you know, I should be beaten. I, you know, I ran away. I deserve to be have, you know, to have these circumstances, etc. So, they are dealing with a lot of guilt and shame issues, and giving them some control back is really vital for their healing to begin. It's not easy to get to collect forensic evidence, and there are courses that you can take. Sane. Uh, S-A-N-E, sexual assault nurse exam, and SAFE, S-A-F-E, sexual assault forensic examination. I would encourage you to take these courses. They come in various lengths and for various fees and various settings, but um, it would be good for you to know what to do, how do you, um, you know, how do you collect that kind of information that is useful later down the road. Besides that hotline number, I want you to remember this take-home message. The body is the crime scene. This is why your role as healthcare professionals is essential in making the case and seeing that justice is done. The body is the crime scene. And what's the court going to want? Again, we're talking about, you know, what does law enforcement, what does the legal system um, want you to know? Getting a solid patient history, documenting that on your chart. Photo documentation is also important. Um, clothing, your notes about what you see or find on the clothing. Photographs of the wounds. There are whole courses you can take just in photography for forensic medicine. Your notes, however, is does this look like a sharp uh, injury, a blunt injury? Is there any... Ed- any um, evidence for strangulation or choking? Does, are there any burn marks in unusual places, bruises that seem to have certain patterns? Uh, you've got to undress the patient because what pimps and other people will do is to make those injuries hidden. So, you know, maybe between the thighs or on the back where you might not necessarily look. You may not see them on the arms. Um, you know, is there evidence for any foreign bodies? I don't want to go into the full descriptions, but there are inconceivable ways in which people will batter, use rods, brooms, irons, chains, etc. Findings from blood, urine, and emesis, uh, getting swabs, vaginal and penile swabs, and also pubic hair. Actually, when you undress people, just a, um, you should have some kind of Uh, collection cloth so that as they take things off, there may be small pieces, maybe pubic hair from the perpetrator or something that, you know, or drops of blood as let's say she was scratching the 
the attacker, things that uh, may be um, that may fall off the patient that would certainly be useful within a DNA crime scene investigation. And getting the patient's statement in their own words. Don't sanitize it, just get it down to what it is. And be able, you want to be able to paint a vivid picture of what happened for the jury if a trial ensues. And these statements will demonstrate the actual severity, especially if a patient withdraws from this or minimizes it. You can say, you know, these were my findings, this, you know, this is what, you know, what I have objectively gathered during my examination. Photography, get consent. Why get consent? Because probably many, I mean, first of all, that's the proper thing to do, but probably photography without consent has happened. They've had their picture taken and provocative poses. They've been posted on Craigslist or back page of Village Voice. Um, you know, they're out there, you know, on somebody's cell phone. And so get consent and explain why you're doing it. I'm doing this, and you can say no at any time, um, but this will help document the case. This will provide the support. Maybe this will provide the evidence that you can't yourself verbalize or you just you know, break down because you can't describe it. But I can show this, and the court will understand. Picture is worth a 1,000 words. I know you've got a lot of documentation to do, but um, that's, that goes without saying. Photograph before cleaning or suturing. Oftentimes, people want to sort of clean up before they have the exam, if they've been a rape victim or whatever. Try to um, make sure that nobody does any sort of cleaning or suturing before you have a chance to do that. Put a ruler in the photographer. Um, get various angles of the photography and um, in direct and indirect lighting. It's also helpful just to measure things. There's Somebody even showed me they had what I think they called it a bruise card, which had... Um, the diam varying diameters of bruises and the colors so that you could say this matches number 15 on the bruise card. It might give some sense of when the injury happened and the size of it. Now, legal protection for tip victims. Uh, I'm speaking now regarding the United States. There are four different categories in which victims, if they get through this process, uh, may be able to apply for. One is continued presence. Two others are T and U uh, status, T and U visas. And the other is lawful permanent resident status. I only put this out here so you'll have some conversant ability with the legal system when they um, start discussing, oh, well, this is CP or this is T or U, et cetera. Now, why are these important to the victim? And it may be helpful to know this in order to say to this person, these are things that accrue to you if you are able to help cooperate with the investigation. Getting legal status in the United States, public benefits such as food stamps. Whoops. How did that disappear? Hmm. Something has disconnected, and 
Okay, it's back. Somebody must have prayed. <laughs> All right, it's back. So anyway, public benefits. They're going to need basic things like um, getting food at the grocery store, food stands, cash assistance. Um, how do they access Medicaid, um, Social Security insurance? Um, these are only available for those who have T non-immigrant or continued present status. They may need help with work authorization, again, social service, and um, people within that area may be able to help. And also, another important benefit is that T and U non-immigrants can sometimes bring family members into the United States. So if they've got a child who's back in their home country and really want to be reunited, there may be some options there. Um, T and U visas... Again, could be a whole seminar in this. I just want you to be familiar with them so that you can go and look for more information. But they do require a certain degree of cooperation from the victim so that uh, the case can be investigated and prosecuted. Now, what if you are called as an expert witness? What if your victim says, yes, I want to go forward with this. I want to see that my perpetrator, my pimp, is brought to justice and that I re get my civil rights restored. Keep in mind that you are the doctor or nurse, the healthcare professional, and that person is not your patient unless you are providing ongoing care and treatment with medical records support. All right? You have a different role to play in that court. So um, before the court date, it's important to discuss what you have pulled together as a testimony with that client's attorney, and you need to review your affidavit. What will be important for the court, the judge, or jury um, to hear, and what is peripheral to that? And I also will mention that sometimes when you come into court, they will, there will be a certain challenge like, okay, so who are you? What are your credentials? Where did you go to medical school? Have you ever done this before? Are you related to the victim? Could be possible. Are you related to the attorney? So be prepared for that. Be, be prepared to objectively, professionally, in a poised way state your qualifications. There may be some hostility that's directed towards you, and you're thinking, whoa, I'm just here to you know, support this process. So be courteous, even when given hostile questions. Be clear about your limits of expertise. Don't start speculating or explaining what you think happened. Just simply say, I found such and such. Yours is not to be the investigator. You are the, simply there to say, in a sense, the body is the crime scene, and this is what I found. And if you don't know the answer, of course, say, say that you don't. Sometimes these things don't happen within a courtroom. They may simply happen over a telephone. So speak clearly, speak coherently. You're probably going to be recorded. Um, it's helpful because you're going to have a phone call to have the key information in front of you written out. Don't get flustered. Take your time. Don't feel like you have to fill in those pauses of silence with information that may or may not be useful. But if you get to court... Um, you know, dress professionally, as I say, be poised, don't get ruffled. If you don't understand a question, ask for it to be repeated, ask for clarification. Now, um, in your assessment and your affidavit and testimony, these are the kind of terms that are useful to use. I know sometimes we have in medical language different terms, but I would say make it very clear. This finding is not consistent, or this finding is consistent or highly consistent or typical or diagnostic. 
So, you know, you'll need to you you'll need to educate the court in a sense where your medical assessment uh, how that fits in with the the patient's testimony, the victim's testimony. Now, what makes for a good witness or an affidavit? Do not go beyond your you know, clear scope of work. Don't start speculating. Um, don't say anything about the client's credibility unless there's some context for that. Um, you need to provide some evidence that the patient uh, wasn't malingering. That's sometimes difficult to do. Um, but there are some tests that you can do within a clinical setting that may give you um, reason to suspect that these are legitimate issues. It's hard sometimes to assess pain. It's hard to know the validity of a history. You need to provide factual, non-emotional assessments. You are not the drama queen in this. You know, let the victim um, play out the drama for you, uh, for the court. Provide diagrams and photos um, when they're appropriate. And don't get into an advocacy role. Don't say, oh my, you know, if you don't see this patient's difficult circumstance, they will be endangered, they'll have to return to their country. That's really up to the judge to decide. Let's just talk a a little bit about some realities as we wind up. Um, You know, we live really in an imperfect world. We're, you know, on the other side of Eden. So support services are not going to be perfect. Staff may be burned out. They may be understaffed. They may not care about this particular victim. They may not have a lot of experience or they're burdened with bureaucracies and paperwork and so on. So just keep that in mind. Um, I know sometimes within the, the juvenile detention center, I can feel dismayed that the system is, I don't feel like it's working ideally for this teenage girl who's been trafficked, um, who's had problems uh, with the system. But I just have to recognize that uh, this is the system and its imperfections that I deal with. Also recognize that sometimes law enforcement is, they've got their, their focus on criminal justice outcome and they are not so much thinking about victim protection. They may, but that's not always the case. And so there, there may be instances in which re-trauma, re-traumatization occurs. As we all know, social services um, can have its, their own bureaucracies and details, and it's sometimes hard to figure out you know, the fine print and the footnotes and whether you do this or that. That's just why I said it's very helpful for you to know your national and state protocols um, you're in a much, you have a much better position of leverage if you know what those protocols are and how the things, how things work. You know, I wish it were, I wish it worked seamlessly, but the reality is that these systems are much messier. Also, victims are not perfect. Uh, they can be very unhappy about shelter systems. They feel imprisoned. They feel like the rules are restricting them. You know, why does the warden, you know, make me do X, Y, and Z? I don't like wearing this uniform. You know, if they're in a detention center, the bed is too hard, the food is, you know, crappy, etc. And there also may, may be interpersonal problems. These, in my instance, you know, these girls are all kind of thrown together. 
Um, you know, they may be from different gangs or they've had experience with different gangs. Um, they may not get along with each other and they can break out in fights and scratch each other. In fact, when we go into the detention center, even to do uh, crafts and health lessons with them and so on, we have to be very careful that we don't leave behind scissors or pens or you know, paper clips or whatever that could be used for other purposes. So, but anyway, they get into fights. And unfortunately, sometimes it's not the cream of the crop that are serving in the detention center. I unfortunately have seen some of the wardens get into fights and arguments. And I grieve for that because I think they're not setting a good example for, for those girls. Also, the imperfections are victims, you know, may have mental health problems. They may have had alcohol or drug use. They may have had had uh, traumatic brain injury. They may have seizure disorders as a result. There may be on medications that kind of cloud their perspective or make them um, angry or not able to really cooperate. And they may just still be working out issues, um, guilt, blame, shame, etc. And we've talked so much about caring for the victim. I want to, you to keep in mind self-care. We live in a broken world. This is where the enemy wants to have, has his stronghold and, you know, wants to keep us from getting the work done. And I would say be aware that you are entering this stronghold and, you know, enter it with prayer and know why you're going into this work. There are sometimes people who have been trafficked or had abuse, sexual abuse within their background, and they're sort of trying to work out their life by going and serving and helping others, and maybe they are healed or maybe they're sort of not along that way. And you need to be honest with yourself and say, why am I getting engaged in this? You know, where is my role in, in building God's kingdom, and where am I still needing God's kingdom to be within me? And know how to set your boundaries. Don't be a lone ranger. Have support and prayer groups. Every time we go to the detention center, we would always have times of prayer and afterwards. And then sometimes we would have times only for prayer, for the girls, for ourselves, etc. And cast all your cares on Christ, who cares with you, uh, cares for you with an everlasting love. I have a few minutes. I just want to add some extras um, in case anybody has gone to sleep. I want to give you some little tips. Take a look at slaveryfootprint.org and ask yourself, how many slaves work for me? I don't, is, is there anybody in this audience who has already checked out their slavery footprint um, by going online? I don't see any hands. So, okay, there is one person who's done that. So it, it takes you to some very interesting things about what you own, what you have in your home, what you use, etc. You'd be surprised and humbled, and you may be able to use that to decrease your slavery footprint as we try to decrease our carbon footprint as well. The other thing that was just launched in mid-October is something called ChallengeSlavery.org. It was actually launched by the U.S. Agency for International Development, and it's a tech contest that calls on university students to develop creative ideas and solutions to prevent trafficking and provide assistance to victims and survivors. They are asking for all these you know, millennials and younger generation who are forever creating apps and knowing new ways of communicating to develop some concept papers and some designs along with maybe a video and online media of ideas in which 
you know, there may be some way of getting out the word fighting uh, trafficking in that way through using information technology. So uh, submissions are accepted between November 28th and January 8th. Take a look at slaverychallenge.org website. They will be voting on the best submissions in January, and then USAID will announce the winners and the prizes the following February. February. So please take a look at that. The other thing I want to mention is that one of our members of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, <clears throat> with whom I work and on whose board I've also been, um, has uh, put together a film called Trade of Innocence. It has Dermot Mulroney and Mira Servino in it. It's a story about Cambodia. It's, uh, I lived in Cambodia, and I saw this story, and I was just so moved by the story and the events, and very professionally done. I've put together here the dates of four places where it will be showing next week in Gloucester, Massachusetts, November 18th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, November 21st in Key West, Florida, and December 7th in Denver. If you've got friends in those areas, please tell them to go. I think, as you know, it's that first show up. Um, in theaters that makes a difference. It's a beautiful film, and uh, you, can get, you can look at the trailers if you just Google Trade of Innocence. I've put up four references here. There is a ton of references on trafficking. Um, Caring for Trafficked Persons is a guide that was developed um, for health pro providers. I worked on an expert team with uh, others with the International Organization for Migration. There's also an IOM, Handbook on Direct Assistance, very practical. WHO has put out ethical and safety recommendations for interviewing trafficked women. And um, there's also within the Department of Justice an Office of Victims of Crime that has technical training uh, that's available to you online. And lastly, Health Right uh, International has a Victims of Torture training that is superb. It's free. It's one day. It's in various places around the country. Health Right and look for their training. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery. Each one of you is an abolitionist. Each one of you must be called to seek justice for this world, to let justice roll, to let the years that the locust has, to restore the years that the locust has claimed in people's lives. So I want to say go out there and abolition for this. Thank you.